Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We've gone kind from a covid problem to a Russia-China geopolitical problem, but the impact is the same. One thing um, that does seem clear at the moment is that, you know, the fundamentals of US-China rivalry has not been solved by trade ties, doesn't look like it will immediately be solved by trade ties. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, Sir Roland Wilson Scholar and economist Helen Mitchell and Director of Research and Economics at the Australian Industry Group, Geoffrey Wilson, join NSC's Policy Director, Will Stoltz, to discuss how the global economy is reshaping international security. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So, Helen, Jeff, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Will. Oh, thanks so much, Will. So, I've been really looking forward to having you both for a discussion because I think the combination of your respective expertise promises to really help get to the heart of what's uh, happening in the global economy and, I suppose, how it's affecting international security. Now, now, while I guess I, I would say I, I am excited for this, uh, for the conversation we're going to have, I guess, admittedly, I don't feel that it's going to be a particularly rosy conversation. Um, and, and perhaps you can kind of correct me on that. And I, and I say that you know, not as an economist, but just, uh, you know, taking stock of the trends that are out there and the things we're witnessing. I mean, just to kind of lay lay the scene, I suppose, you know, we've got food and fuel crises emanating from the war in Ukraine. We've got kind of straining global supply lines, bounding inflation, and acutely in Australia, I suppose, some severe workforce and population obstacles. And, and I guess adding to that, uh, what appear to be some big moves towards um, something resembling deglobalization of the world economy. So there's a lot there. Um, and perhaps to kind of um, help enter, uh, enter that problem, I might turn to you, Jeff, to, to perhaps start us with the issue that's, I guess, perhaps most hardly hitting our listeners, which is the inflation issue. So if we can start on that, I guess, firstly, you know, what is your assessment of what's driving the kind of bounding inflation we're, we're witnessing and, and where do you think we're going to land? Mm. Well, look, some of this has a genesis that goes back to the start of the pandemic uh, almost two years ago when you had a lot of interruptions to international economic connections. Some of these were domestic. We had shutdowns in Australia and many of us will remember when toilet paper was short in the supermarkets, but also a lot of the international connections for shipping, particularly air freight and things like this. Um, The challenge is that this has kind of transformed as a lot of countries have at least gotten through a stage where they were using really heavy public health controls. And a lot of that inflationary drive has shifted to a more political basis, particularly China and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, On the China front, China continues a zero COVID policy that even the World Health Organization is now saying is unsustainable for its economy. Um, And we've seen lots of shortages in Australia where a snap lockdown in a uh, second tier Chinese city because of one COVID case has caused us shortages of building products and medicines and all those things. And then on the energy and food front, you've also had the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, That's changed energy markets with a number of sanctions. Um, In a lot of food products, it's also blocked a huge amount of the world's grains exports coming out of the Black Sea from both countries that can't get out at the moment. Um, And then even narrow things, um, sunflower oil. Russia and Ukraine produce 80% of the world's sunflower oil. So for the time being, that's effectively off the market. Um, So we've gone kind from a COVID problem to a... Russia, China, geopolitical problem, but the impact is the same. We can't get access to things we used to get access to, or if you want it, you have to pay well over the odds. And we see inflation in some countries running at double digits as a consequence of that. That's right. I'd, I'd add to that. Um, so we've also had extreme weather events, right? 
that's also affected this supply side. And, you know, sort of the geopolitical events that were preceding the the pandemic and the start of this issue of shortening supply chains and more stockpiling, um, that in effect, the sort of the net effect in an economic sense of all that at the end is is high prices as well. So there's been these things that have um, been uh, been sort of um, pre the the Ukraine issue that that have been continuing, um, and of course, I mean, I think it's a good point about the zero COVID policy in China because that has also an impact on what we believe will happen in in the future, um, and and of course, China's for our region extremely important um, in terms of as a as a source of demand and what that means for um, emerging markets in in our region and and sort of less developed economies as mm. well. And, yeah. and Helen, you've been examining, you know, the, the mobilisation of economic statecraft um, broadly, but but I suppose most recently, I assume your attention has been caught by everything targeting Russia. Do you think when these punitive economic measures were launched against Russia, do you think we, I guess we being, you know, the West, anticipated the or, or realised what it would trigger? Oof. It's it's very complex. Doing something like enacting sanctions, um, I think what is well understood is that it's it's a blunt tool, and even though it can be really powerful, um, some effects are beyond our control, um, and that's because a lot of it runs through markets, and firms are in charge of their own decisions. And and uh, you know the the point is in in places like Australia and the US, we don't control um, firms, or not to not to much much of an extent. Um, so no, I, th- I think some of it there was sort of expected chaos would probably be my way of putting it. Um, but um, within that, I still think that some of the um, broad objectives of those sanctions, so things like diminishing economic growth in Russia, um, and, and part of that, of course, is about um, diminishing the resources available to um, Putin for, for his war. Some of that, I mean, has, I think, been run sort of as expected. And that's because beforehand there was prior information about things like the state of capital reserves um, in, in Russia and about its export relationships. Look, on the energy side, it, I, I don't think it's necessarily that the costs were unexpected. It's mm. that inevitably politics comes into play and it's a very sticky situation at the moment. Um, you know, I think the as far as I'm aware, the current state of play is that Nord Stream is not running. There's a technical issue and I don't think yeah, that that's issue, right. Yeah. And I don't <laughs> think, sorry for everybody listening, they were just rabbit ears from both <laughs> Will, and, Will and Jeff there. So there's a technical issue and uh, it doesn't look like, I mean, this is great. Great leverage for for Putin, right? So uh, the the political costs are really starting to to be borne. Look, in some ways, Will, it's a great question because in some ways, what you do in these situations is policymakers kind of handcuff themselves a little bit. It's a bit of a commitment device. You know, we will not stand for something like what Putin is doing um, to Ukraine, and by extension, um, what other great powers might seek to do in in their regions. And so we will kind of tie ourselves, um, commit ourselves to to this um, deep economic pain, partly because we don't want to bear um, the cost of, of lives and military action and what that could spark, um, but also because there is a value, um, you know, it, it's seen as we will impose these um, costs that show a credible commitment um, to, to standing against these sort of actions. So I guess just to kind of test a proposition with you both, you know, for as long as this war continues and, and indeed probably for a period beyond the end of the war, you know, it, it's likely, is it not, that Russia's relationship with the global economy will resemble kind of that of Iran, you know, not quite the full isolation of North Korea, but pretty cut off and cut off to an extent that previously kind of critical trading partnerships, you know, say, for example, the European energy market will kind of be permanently diversified away from Russia, you know, like, is that going to be the long term consequence, Jeff, do you think? <sighs> Something that's interesting about these sanctions is they are a bit different to what we've been used to. So economic sanctions against countries are as old as the hills and they happen all the time. You know, you've mentioned Iran, US sanctions against Cuba, various other countries in those situations. Um, But they used this two features is that they're typically not being these big mass trade sanctions. So person, and and we saw this with Russia, sanctions on oligarchs and collecting their uh, yachts in Monaco and things like this, or financial sanctions. You can't do business with certain banks. But what we're seeing with these trade sanctions is actually interrupting the real economy. You know, Australia and a number of other countries like Canada have put across the board tariffs on Russia, 35% simply because as, as a punishment device. Um, and we also haven't tended to do with countries as large as Russia either, you know, Sanctions on Iran might distort regional energy markets in the Middle East. 
but they're not going to change the way that sanctions on a Russia on actual commodity trade is. So, you know, to some degree, and I, I mean, getting back to your earlier point, it's actually quite hard to tell what does it look like when you put serious commodity affecting trade sanctions on an mm-hmm. economy as big as Russia that we are carbohydrogonous. We haven't done this since the 1930s and the, the, the horrible trade wars of that era. So, I, you know, I think, and, and I've been part of some teams where we actually have to look at this stuff and no one, you know, just from a technical point of view, as a trade policy specialist, it's it's a new exercise. Most trade policy specialists have never sat down and goes, what happens when a 35% tariff goes in across everything we trade with Russia? That's not an exercise in my professional career I've ever had to do before. That's a really good example, isn't it? Because, I mean, your experience, Jeff, is I think what we're seeing start to pop up again and again. There's definitely a market, I think, for um, sort of geopolitical risk analysts. Mm. It's interesting too, um, I've heard from others that um, some countries seem to be well set up for this and, and others a bit less so. So interestingly, Australia's slightly more, I would say, um, egalitarian labour market practices um, mean you can be um, someone that works in business um, that, for example, isn't necessarily um, part of a an old boys club and, and rubbing shoulders with um, people who are sort of quite influential in government. And in other countries, that is the case. And interestingly, um, we're, we're going to have to sort of generate these information flows between business and government um, in a way that in in other countries, you might have a sort of a, you know, a natural nesting ground of people who regularly share this sort of information. Um, or, of course, there's other more centralised systems um, where business comes under um, sort of the, the business of government um, in, in a more, um, I, would, I would say, kind of politically regulated way. So I'm thinking about, you know, centralised economies like China. Australia had this experience two years ago with the Chinese trade sanctions as well when, um, you know, from May we start with barley and coal and wine and a lot of trades that have been commodity trades that businesses have just gotten on with it. They've never had any recourse to really have to deal with, with, with you know, large government agencies or have security-related discussions, um, particularly in some industries like rock lobsters here in WA. They're very small SMEs. Some of these were a bloke with some lobster pots. Um, the idea that they would have to do geopolitical risk analysis and be engaging with, you know, agencies that do that, whether that's their industry body, consultants, government, you know, we never we haven't done this. And I think for a really long time it's never happened in, you know, people of our generation. It hasn't happened in our professional careers before. So I think Australia, we kind of, we're a little bit ahead of the curve on this because we've learnt some of that mm. government business relationship muscle memory through that experience, whereas a lot of European countries that are now dealing with a Russia problem are having to to have the conversations that we learned how to have two years ago. I think that's right. And I think our, our experience of having to be better on, in a way, sort of defensive economics and not just relying on, on markets and the liberal order in the way that Australia has been able to for some decades – uh, has been useful and instructive. It's made me and others think that we also need to get onto um, sort of offensive um, e- economics mm. as well. And I, I don't necessarily mean that in a kind of destroying markets type way. I just, if you use the word offensive, mm. I don't know what it brings mm. to mind for you, but I, I don't mean in, in that sense. Um, what I more mean is, um, you know, we need to be more forward leaning and thinking more about um, opportunities. I mean, it's basically opportunity analysis. You know, what are the markets um, where Australia can be more forward leaning and, and take advantage of what's sort of the um, um, the tumultuous nature now of the um, international economic system, not completely tumultuous, but there are elements of that, I'd say, at the moment. You know, so um, obvious example would be um, in markets like, um, you know, renewables and, and green energy. You know, we have a chance to be to play real sort of offence um, in, in sort of an economic statecraft sense there, um, but also in terms of things like, um, you know, flows of um, talent, um, for mm. example. Um, I know this is sort of something you're probably going to bring up, Will, and you're interested in, but um, we can be quite offensive in terms of thinking about um, how sort of the freeze in migration flows has also offered an opportunity for us to attract the best mm. and and to really, you know, um, make our economy a sort of, um, you know, we, we can have our niche areas of expertise um, and, and we can really play as more of a, you know, a bigger player in, in an international system where the rules are a bit less clearly defined and a bit less regularly enforced um, by, by having um, our, our own advantages. But all of this um, this move to be more offensive and defensive, to adapt to for more and more businesses to be reaching out for people who can understand the geopolitical risk, does seem to indicate that we are at something of a historic turning point in the nature of the global economy, that we might be entering um, a, a new normal, so to speak, and it's not necessarily going to be a better normal. I mean, um, to kind of get to this 
this theme of of deglobalization. I mean, um, the the strategist Peter Zian has recently written a book that, among other things, argues that 2019 was the high point of global um, of economic globalization, and that the forces. I mean, he points to both the forces of populist politics and the decline of American power, among other things, are kind of pulling us. Uh, towards a global economy that's much more kind of fractured, um, perhaps more multipolar to use that word. I mean, on on face value, that seems right, doesn't it? Like certainly it appears that you'd have to be a fairly bullish person to believe the global economy is about to take off into some kind of new heights of prosperity at the moment. Yeah, by a few measures, I think that's probably true. Interconnectedness has probably peaked in in some ways, and there's some um, great work out there that sort of explains why that's happened in different places. Um, but one thing um, that does seem clear at the moment is that you know the fundamentals of U.S.-China rivalry has not been solved by trade ties. Mm. Doesn't look like it will immediately be solved by trade ties. Which is not to say that the sort of liberal democratic peace theory is debunked. I mean, between liberal dem- democracies, there probably is that sort of deterrent effect um, of, of economic ties that, that stop you doing things like going to all-out war. Um, but what it has shown is that I don't think it um, expands beyond that to mm. encompass countries um, that don't fit that that same um, that same mould. And I think that, um, you know, there's sort of the idea of where we're heading, um, you know, whether we want to um, contest the idea of a world where um, there's more sort of influence within regions by global um, powers or great powers in that region is really being drawn into this argument about how to organise, um, you know, trade and investment and now sort of the digital world, trade and um, digital trade and, and commerce ties. You know, where we're kind of having to come to this sort of more existential question about, you know, um, how much do we want to avoid things like, you know, a hot war between the US and, and China and, and what's the fallout from that? Um, you know, you roll back to now and say, well, we might then have to do a little bit of decoupling that is costly, but if that helps us to put some guardrails up that avoid, you know, that all-out catastrophe, you know, maybe then the opportunity costs look different. And and even though it's it sort of um it doesn't look as efficient in a in a neat economics paper, um, that's not the sort of the reality of the international system we're in. Don't know what you think, Jeff. Yeah, I I think there's look, the decoupling thing has been overrigged. And a lot of people have this metaphor of the of the first Cold War in the 1950s and the 1960s, and we didn't trade with the Soviet bloc, uh, or a little bit of wheat or oil, but very commodity, very arm's length, um, and 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 very not baked into the system. You could live without it if it fell over, and that's not not going to happen. But what is happening is there is a political risk premium that now exists that probably hadn't in the past, and probably hasn't for a generation. Uh, like if we just use this. Australia-China relationship in 2020 is an example. For about 30 years, most Australian businesses were able to have commercial relationships with China, whether that was trade, whether that was investment. It could be migration very um, significantly as well, effectively without being interrupted by political risk. And there's been a lot of ups and downs in the Australia-China relationship over those 30 years, but it was kind of kept on a separate track with the ups and downs and the economic stuff would just carry on quietly in the background. And then in May 2020, that stops and that breaks. That doesn't mean it's not a reason to have an economic relationship or trade with China, but it does mean that you have to price that in. And a lot of people won't. They think, well, we've been through bad stuff. It's happened in the past. This, th- those political wins will never affect business. And so the price you were putting on those political wins was zero. Now that's a positive price. You could still do it, but you have to work that in. How do we manage that risk? What happens if it goes wrong? Do I have uh, alternate options? Um, and I think that's what people are grappling with, not this decoupling, but the, who you trade with and with what you trade has a political risk factor on it that's non-zero. And because for the last 30 years for Australia, it's pretty much been zero. I think that's right. And just to um, decode for our listeners, what all of that means is higher prices, yeah. doesn't it, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> just to be clear. So, I mean, I think that is an important way that countries navigate this new environment. And there's sort of um, variations on this theme. There's things like um, diversifying and there's, you know, I think um, Jeff's work on, on uh, that, that you're alluding to there on uh, trusted partnerships and things. And, and there's things like stockpiling at home, of course, and, and nearshoring, all of that. Um, but just to be clear, right, 
that. So when we move away from um, going for the sort of the most efficient, just-in-time type model, um, that means that we're effectively going for a more expensive model, um, but we are hopefully then avoiding things like great supply disruptions and so there's, there's certain benefits to it. Um, but in terms of the ultimate um, sort of price cost, mm. that's that's more expensive. But you look rather gloomy, Will, just for listeners. Um, here's a positive story. Um, <laughs> there are ways around this, aren't there? So there are things like um, innovation and ideas, right? And and these are things that can, across the board, um, bring down the costs of mm. goods um, and, and offer new services and new ways of doing things. Um, I think the sort of... Um, the, the bit that we should also be worried about apart from, um, you know, all-out catastrophic war, which is, to be fair, at pressing and, and worth d- worrying about deep it concern. Then, yeah. It is, it is, yeah. <laughs> um, another thing, though, would also be that we uh, get distracted from doing things like um, really useful reforms, mm. um, both, both here but, of course, in really big countries that matter like the United, United States, um, and and doing things that foster innovation and and um, that, that drive the sort of the gains not just from trade but actually actually from um, uh, production at home, um, that can also help us. It doesn't quite, we can't quite solve our way out of it, um, but it would certainly help alleviate some of these price pressures and it actually opens up new avenues to the future that we haven't even considered yet Um, or, you know, Maybe some people in Silicon Valley, you know, deep late at night have considered mm. these amazing new worlds and, and they managed to come up with these great products that get you there. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a, a spot of hope. Well, I mean, it is, it's, history shows that these sorts of crises can sometimes bear out, you know, remarkable solutions or at least, if nothing else, kind of wake people up to structural changes that they have long avoided but need to make. And in a way, I suppose Europe's response to the energy crisis is already kind of seeing that. Like, you know, Germany's not yet um, able to absolve itself from Russian fuel, but the efforts they're making to bolster, you know, the scale of the renewable energy sector um, is incredibly impressive. And then we're seeing other countries as well making what were once very, very difficult decisions about renewable energy up to and including nuclear energy, um, kind of biting the bullet on it. So, you know, there is, I guess, I suppose that sometimes you've got to shock people into action, I suppose. Um I guess to to get to this this idea of where Australia sits on this question of being attuned to the political risk that's now just as you kind of said, Jeff, like baked into how we have to engage in the global economy. I mean, it does strike me as an Australian, and I'm sure it strikes many Australians as a kind of self evident proposition that to deal with these um, international issues, an interconnected trading, you know, free trade kind of global economic system is what's required, that there kind of isn't really much of an alternative to dealing with things like fuel crises and food crises and, and supply and, you know, disruptions to supply chain. There isn't the protectionism, that turning inward and cutting yourself off isn't really an alternative. But, I mean, is that as self-evident to other countries and other systems as it feels to us? Because you look at the behaviour of some, some economies and it would almost suggest that that isn't a self-evident proposition. This is a hard one. So there's some trade economists have this um, cute theory of trade liberalisation. I don't know if you've heard, it's called the bicycle theory of trade liberalisation. And and the basic idea is that opening up to trade is like a bicycle. If you, you know, the metaphor is if you stop going forwards like a bike, it just falls over on the side without forward momentum. And the idea comes from the notion that there is often within societies, you know, ever-present push for protectionism. And this can can sometimes come from the populist left, it can sometimes come from the populist right. But the key to being able to sustain that is to actually forever demonstrate the benefit and utility of economic openness to an economy, which we've had great success with in Australia over this time. Um, One of the challenges when the global economy becomes difficult like this and people look out and they say, well, we've got this monstrous inflation and we now, you know, there's not products on the store shelves. The emotional appeal of if we made that, and it's in every country, if we made that in America, if we made that in Australia, if we made that in the UK, if we made it in China or Japan, but, you know, it becomes very, we wouldn't have this problem. It would probably, the made in us product would probably cost 10 times as much and no one would be able to afford it. I can't stress the horrible inflationary consequences of, 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 of made everything here. Um, but it is a difficult, it's a difficult and not a difficult sell. And very often in public debate, the simple emotionally appealing answer trumps over the, the complex but, but accurate one. Um, so I think this is 
and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, but it, it, it calls for us to start being able to articulate these arguments to the public in a way we haven't. We haven't had in Australia, certainly, to have a, a public debate about trade policy in my lifetime. Um, because it was just we were in Asia, there was these big growing markets, they were taking everything we could buy with no problems, mm. we were doing FTAs with them, it was up, 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 good, 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 and it was, and they were great. But we've, we've never had hard times when you've had to go and, and talk to people and say, you know, to a mass audience and to businesses and say, you know, there is value in the way things are, and I know it's under stress, but this is better than the alternative of closure and isolation because Australia would be a small, poor country if we weren't open. Nope, I think that's right, Jeff. Yeah, I think um, unfortunately it means really enumerating what the costs are. Um, we've seen what adjustment costs um, can do to sort of, um, you know, stimmy political action. I mean, look at what's happening in the United States. The Biden administration seems to be struggling with, on one hand, being elected and clearly wanting to, from an ideological perspective as well, do more on climate change. And on the other hand, we've just seen Biden go to Saudi Arabia, um, you know, sort of begging for more oil from OPEC Plus. Um, at because they're worried about petrol prices, they've got the midterms coming up, and and they're worried about you know the political effects at at home of that, um, and and you know coming back to adjustment costs, what I mean by that is um, you know uh, Biden, um, you know his his uh, when he was uh, you know going for president, he said um, you know it's going to be foreign policy for the middle class, and mm. and what that means is a recognition of the fact that liberalisation has had costs and they've been unevenly borne across the U.S. economy. Um, um, so we saw there was a lot of commentary around when Trump was elected um, about this sort of this group of, um, you know, sort of um, lower middle class um, Americans who are not seeing through successive generations, um, you know, a betterment of circumstances and blaming in some cases possibly fairly, in some cases not. Um, trade liberalisation for that. I say that because there was some Nobel laureate work done a few years ago that showed that, um, well, it, it's First of all, it's pretty complex, but there's a mix of causes and and, and it's not always trade liberalisation that's doing that. Um, but the point is, so trade adjustment costs haven't always been dealt with positively um, and sometimes they can also just be conflated with other issues that are happening, which are, you know, um, insidious but not always obvious. It can be to do with um, the way that migration is managed or it can be to do with education systems and getting caught in cycles um, of inequality basically, which is, you know, a sort of a, a big issue that the US is currently grappling with. Anyway, you know, sort of an end point to all of that to go back to your question, Will, about interconnectedness and, and kind of buying into the, the trade agenda. Um, if you don't manage those things well, then there won't be much buy-in and there will be um, interest at home in, in protectionism. We're seeing in the current conflict, for example, just to take a completely different state entirely, um, we're seeing, you know, with the problems going on in um, global food markets, you know, India putting on export controls mm. um, on, on you know, export of grains, which is a, a big issue at the moment that, that we might discuss further. But my point is, you know, there's a few things going on there, but a lot of it is about domestic politics mm. and about domestic needs. Um, and we have to expect a bit more of that um, going forward. So, you know, uh, the, the idea about, um, you know, the gains from trade being shared fairly, um, you know, to to continue buying for that going forward, there does have to be a better enumeration of what the costs actually look like. Um, and also, I think, you know, Australia seems to have done a, a, a reasonable job of uh, managing those adjustment costs, but we, we certainly can't fall into the trap of not doing that going forward. I mean, you mentioned briefly there the the kind of global food crisis that we've we've gotten at least at least partially India's response to it. I mean, this this is a really unsettling um, series of events, and it does seem to be quite an intractable problem in the sense that you know there's there's a myriad of things that are exacerbating um, the food crisis. There's you know the, the supply chain issues that we've we've experienced for, for a while. Um, there's obviously the the effects of climate change in a more hostile environment, but then. A big one does appear to be the fact that we are in the process of severing from the global economy one of the biggest producers of fertilizer. Seems like a, a bit of a, a difficult one, and and it, and it does, I suppose, highlight where these issues are intractable. And by solving one, you don't necessarily help another. So, I mean, I, I guess it'd be interesting to kind of get your both of your reflections on um, what the impact of this this food crisis is perhaps going to be for the international system long term. Um, but I, I suppose also whether it is going to bake in a kind of new normal when it comes to global inequality as well, because if it is an intractable problem that there isn't a quick solution for, 
is it going to just widen the gap between the wealthy and the not so wealthy countries? Well, I'd, I'd start with one plug um, for international markets is that um, agriculture's, uh, you know, sort of product futures are actually coming down. So it's a sign that we might see food prices start to come down a little bit, which is really positive. Um, part of that has been that countries have sort of surged, you know, so France, for example, has really boosted its, despite actually some extreme weather in, in Europe that's affected crops, um, France has managed to actually boost its wheat exports, for example, which is, you know, a great, you know, that's sort of a, a plug for the, the global mm. economy and, and, and other countries surging to come online and respond to, to prices. Um, but um, that's right, there's sort of the, the supply shocks coming from Ukraine and, and Russia. And of course, that's a sort of an interesting topic in itself. You know, there's, there's mines at the moment in the port of Odessa that are, um, you know, obstructing, um, you know, shipping and and there's issues with, um, you know, even things like um, crops being physically affected by things like blazes starting as a result of, um, you know, missiles, you know, from the Russians. You know, it's mm. it's 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 a true supply shock. You know, you could, you could pop it in a. Um, it probably will be put in economic textbooks, I guess, as a as a way to explain how that um, affects global markets. But um, the the sort of the the ramifications and the run on effects that you're alluding to will. Uh, really depend on on where you are in the world and also what your purchasing power mm. is, and that's where it goes to your um, your inequality point. I think so. Um, you know, for example, there are larger countries that are quite abundant, um, almost you know self sufficient in some ways um, that can get through these sort of food crises. Especially if they're rich countries like the United States, they can sort of weather these crises pretty well. Um, but of course, lots of small countries or countries that just have some key dependency, mm. um, a place like Lebanon might be an interesting example. Um, need a lot of imports across the board, but especially of think grains and and they're very um, sort of wheat dependent, for example. Um, and countries like that that already have have um, you know political vulnerabilities? So there's been a lot of political turmoil um, in in Lebanon for for many years now. Um, you know they're the ones that get blown about by these international events and and that can end up in in crisis. Um, and and sort of in our region, um, the kind of places that we need to um, sort of be thinking about, I guess, are, are um, you know emerging markets that already present vulnerabilities. You know, so partly to do with what Jeff talked about earlier on in terms of the pandemic. You know, there were countries that were very reliant on things like tourism and and manufacturing exports um, that really ground to a halt mm. during the pandemic. So they were already hit by that. You know, um, also, you know, some countries sort of at risk of debt distress. We've recently seen that play out in Sri Lanka, right? So I'm not trying to say that, um, you know, it's the um, it's a pandemic or, you know, that, that sort of um, spun them into this recent turmoil. There was this long history of you know, economic mismanagement. They developed from least developed country status to being able to borrow on capital markets, gone into high levels of debt. Um, some of that debt um, concessional, meaning that they could borrow on favourable terms, but a decent amount of it not concessional. Mm. So that means um, having to, you know, pay back loans, um, having to meet quite stringent, strict conditions, or having to roll over their debt, which just, you know, even as we know from a personal sense, if you have a credit card, you know, this stuff can snowball. Um, so, you know, and, and, and that being then exacerbated as well by, by the pandemic and, and the cutting off of export revenues effectively. Add on to that, we mentioned before inflation. The problem for a country like Sri Lanka, right, is that when you have inflation and we see, you know, the tightening of interest rates, raising of interest rates in places like the United States, you know, you see a flow of capital from places like emerging markets to the United States. Um, and we see, of course, the, um, you know, currencies, exchange rates of places like Sri Lanka falling. So they now have to repay their debt with less export revenues and with higher interest rates. This is not a pretty picture. Mm. For a country like Australia, there are other concerns too. I mean, you know, a place like Sri Lanka is a literal Indian Ocean state. Mm. Um, it has a range of people that lend it money, um, including places like China. And, and I'm not trying to make a debt trap diplomacy argument here. It's 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 incidental in a way that that China has some of its debt. Um, but what is important is that um, if you do have a debt like China that's not necessarily adhering um, to the same transparency rules, that has a preference to sort of roll over debt um, rather than forgive debt in the manner that, for example, the G20 tries to do. Um, then you have also these political vulnerabilities that worry places like the United States 
which via the IMF, you know, is worried about lending more money to Sri Lanka. So that's the kind of, I would say that's a that's a very gloomy part of the picture for mm. places like the Indo-Pacific about, about food prices. By the way, in terms of the Pacific Islands just close by to us, there I think we should be worried and a bit nervous about, you know, energy prices and, and their dependency on, you know, diesel fuel for power and, and how they go with, uh, you know, with those kind of rising prices. But again, you know, it's not all doom and gloom in the sense that, you know, Australia is well placed. We have this close economic relationship, uh, sorry, close economic, I should say, people-to-people links and political mm. relationship with Sri Lanka that we can leverage and we can actually be quite influential in a situation like this. Um, but it just goes to show, I think, that um, something that, you know, starts in one place of the world and has these sort of flow-on effects, it really picks up on any vulnerabilities that countries have. You know, it shows that small states really do rely on some sort of, st- either some sort of structure of rules, like a liberal international economic order or they rely on big and powerful friends, mm. right? Or in Australia's case, perhaps, you know, we can offer in conjunction with other countries, um, you know, help together. So an alliance of, you know, big and, and you know, that makes um, a sort of a big and powerful friend. Uh, and, and that's kind of the world we've now got to start to think more about and, and grapple more with. Um, so, yeah, definitely, um, it, I don't think, you know, an economist wouldn't uh, sort of characterise this as a, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings and, you know, trees fall down in the Amazon or whichever way around it is, but they would actually see the steps that connect these things. Um, but the point is that we can no longer see these things as sort of demarcated, you know, political security issues on one hand and economic yeah. on the other. Yeah. Mm. Foods, food security is really challenging. And one thing that certainly worries me is that the the world food prices are presently broken records that were set in 2010-2011 that were widely understood to be a catalyzing factor in the Arab Spring of that period. Mm. Um, and so we remember that, and that was, you know, particularly whole uh, bulk grains prices became high and that, that was set that off. It's much higher. Um, to try and make some sense of that, the countries have different experiences of food security, but there's also an within-country dynamic to this where, Generally, if you have shortages and rising prices, rural farmers will typically, because they're producers of the commodity, if you're growing sunflowers at the moment, sunflower seeds at the moment, this is a great time for you. Um, and, the, and so in crises like this, the food security hammer plays on urban populations. You know, why that's interesting for our region, for Australia, is a lot of the countries that have been the most successful developers industrializers and urbanizers in the world over the last generation are in are in the Indo-Pacific there, particularly countries like Indonesia um, and countries like Vietnam, even China itself, that have been able to successfully move people out of relatively low productivity and low life course benefits places in rural squalor and put them into cities. The problem is once you turn up in the city, you're not growing your own food, so you're dependent on markets. And 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 this often, you see this in, the, in po- the politics of food security. We think about it in country versus country terms, but there's a city versus rural divide here as well. That's certainly, you know, when we saw the Arab Spring, that's what you see there with big, large urban centres where people are dependent on food coming in from somewhere. If it stops or they can't afford it, there's a problem. Um, I'd certainly think we need to think really carefully. The Pacific is a, a food insecure region. Also places throughout Southeast Asia where you have large urban agglomerations of people who aren't necessarily global middle class standard for whom a 50% rise in rice or wheat prices is literally beyond that household's capability. Mm-hmm. And they're not a producer, so they're not like their, their parents or their grandparents back in the home village could just grow the rice themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens in terms of urban politics then throughout our region becomes quite interesting. Um, and, look, I, I would be concerned that if we see these high prices becoming structural for more than a year, that's going to people will be able to run down their savings for a while to feed themselves, but, but that can't go on forever. Um, and that, that's going to lead to political disturbance in lots of parts of the world, and our region will be the epicentre. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So while I have you both, um, and before we want to run out of time, I, I would like to turn to um, Australia's own <laughs> economic dilemmas. I suppose. I mean, I mean, firstly, we have a, a pretty crazy low unemployment rate at the moment. Um, brilliant if you're a, a young person looking for your first casual job, but if you're wanting to build new infrastructure, you know, start a company, or for perhaps, for example, build a nuclear submarine, um, we might have potentially tapped out. What can be done in Australia is kind of the vibe I keep getting. I mean, how can we expect this particular issue to unfold? I mean, is there is there some kind of natural correction to this problem? Oh, that's very kind. Yeah, no, you 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 can start, Jeff. Just because okay. I'm, you know, able to produce children doesn't mean I should take that question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I haven't recently been part of the production of a small child, but I'm, uh, doing it for the country. Um, no, look, what, what, the, the interesting thing here is there's lots of stuff. There's inflation, there's a, a, a big economic boom and all the stimulus that lots of countries put through. But the unique story for Australia that, that makes us interesting in the world is, is net inward migration. Um that went negative after we closed the border, which we makes us an experiment. Very few countries, Australia, New Zealand, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, the number of countries that closed their international borders during COVID in the way we did is very rare. So it's a natural experiment for an island that puts up a wall. Um, and we've been ne- negative since. Um, that's still the case in June. Australia is still has net outward migration. So even as recently as last month, despite the border coming open in November last year, and a bit later here in WA because we're behind the rest of the country, um, There is, we still haven't seen that long promise will return a positive. Everyone's going to come because Australia's great kind of argument that people were worried about. Um, just to put it in historical context, Australia has only not had positive inward migration in three years at, since the Second World War, 1947, 2020, 2021. Um, and it's not clear yet that we're going to be positive in 2020, this year in 2022 either. We may be or, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's going to, it, it remains to be seen how the next six months go. But this is completely unheard of for the Australian economy, having not having a labour supply coming in of a couple of hundred thousand people every single year. And, of course, you know, um, this is, so that's probably what's, I think, unique to this situation, separate to a lot of other things is, how does Australia return to what is a natural setting? Because our, econ- our economic growth since white settlement in 1788 has been premised on inward, net inward migration. How, how do we, can, can we survive without it? That's right. I mean, just to, you know, sorry, explain my slightly facetious introductory comment. I mean, so some forthcoming research actually from ANU from Dr. Stephen Robson is about the fact that our, so our fertility rate is about 1.5 replacement rate, I think about 2.1 usually. Um, So the point is we're not having enough children here and that's among, um, you know, whether it be um, sort of first, second, third, ancient generations of Australians, right? This is not just a thing of people migrate and then have more children. No, it's across the board. It seems to be that we're not having um, enough children to um, replace the ones, uh, the people that that die. So um, low and well below replacement, so we need migration. Um, When you look at budget papers most years, um, you find Find that the costs of accommodating more migration are actually lower than the added benefits we get on average. Um, so if you're an economist sitting at the Treasury, you think it's a, you know, it's a no-brainer. Um, enter politics. Um, benefits accrue later and in a dispersed fashion. And it's also historically a bit of a sensitive issue at times. Hopefully not um, at the moment, but um, you know that can sort of uh, wax and wax and wane. Um, and so then beyond also um, the sort of the uh, you know the moral arguments around offering um, you know places to to live and work in Australia. Um, you know we also I, I was mentioning earlier. You know we um, you know this is a tool that we can use. We can attract talent. Um, we can use it. Um, our migration settings as a gesture of um, goodwill. You know, for example in 
times of crisis um, or just more generally. Um, it's a great carrot um, and it makes sense for the Australian economy. So some obvious examples would be, as we already have done, just adding to it more um, you know, freer movement of labour between, for example, the Pacific and Australia. Mm. Um, ex- you know, That can sort of be built on more, can extend it to other parts of Southeast Asia as well. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty clear win-win in, in a lot of ways. Well, without being too teary-eyed about it, I think in, you know, and, and well, I'm thinking about some of the national security discussions that, you know, NSC has in a whole society sense, is that migration is really, really transformative of the makeup of Australian society in ways that makes it more knowledgeable, more connected and more resilient to some of these things. So I always think of my own experience growing up in what at the time was a very small country town in the 1980s and I went to a school where it was nearly universally white faces. There were two Chinese Malaysian kids there who were the children of the local GP. That was it. And I actually read a news story this morning where the principal of my high school was quoted saying that now the high school I went to, 70% of the students at high school are non-Anglo. And I thought the transformation that migration in, in people like our generation has wrought for Australia has just been fantastic. And when we talk about these questions of, well, how do we engage and deal with these issues, we're going to need, you know, a population base that's engaged with these countries that are going to be both good and bad relationships for Australia in the future. So there's a strong economic argument, but but I often fear as economists you might step back from making the social policy argument for migration as well. We say, oh, it'll be good for the economy because we're not having enough kids. That's that's true, but it would also be good for our social fabric. Um, so, you know, I, th- I, th- I think we, we sometimes are a bit hesitant to make that because the complicated domestic politics of that i mean not to dwell on this this um population issue uh, too much longer but i am interested to kind of wrestle it to the ground in the sense of like what what are actually the policy level levers that the the government could pull to increase migration into australia at the moment or is it the fact that just the the outward factors the outside factors are just such that people just aren't wanting to come here in the numbers that we need them to come here Oh, I I would not argue that there's not demand to come. I think pre-pandemic, even during pandemic and post-pandemic, there's certainly demand. In terms of levers, um, you know, we issue a certain number of um, visas per year. We also, um, you know, do things like manage talent lists effectively. So we call them, I think, our, um, you know, the the skills we're looking for. And um, we also have these talent visas. Um, so there's lots of things you can do. You can increase the number of skills and professions on the inward migration list. You can mm. offer particular talent visas for particular, I don't know, sectors or skills, or you can target countries. And, and you can even, um, you know, as, as we have done recently, you can offer more humanitarian visas. No, there's, there's certainly ways to do it. I mean, right now, where you're wanting a big, um, you know, inward flux of migration, you could offer even more visas to Ukrainian refugees, yeah, for example, exactly. like not to take that as just the one spurious, mm. um, you know, kind of European example. There are lots of countries that that applies to. Mm. Um, but I'd say it's on the fairly easy um, end of in, in terms of the mechanics of just um, opening up more, more places because demand is certainly there. I think one one thing would be um, we need to compete. Mm. Um, so, for example, you, people might, um, when they're looking, I don't know, a, a sort of a, let's think of an IT worker um, from Mumbai thinking about, um, oh, I'd quite like to, you know, move to somewhere like Canada or Australia for a while or forever, who knows, um, you know, where do, where will my skills be best used and, and what would my opportunities mm. be? I think one thing is that when you look at like somewhere like Australia compared to Canada, it takes longer, for example, to become on average an Australian citizen and the benefits that confers. And there are some barriers when you get here if you're not a citizen. Um, even things like owning your own home um, becomes more difficult in terms of getting a loan. You know, I just getting mentioned a these. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And working in Canberra, you know, I just mentioned these because these are, mm. you know, substantial barriers. And some countries, it's, it's easier to get by and, and get there quicker. Mm. Um, and so people are, you know, people are, are, are smart and they're going to go for, you know, the, the lifestyle that they want and, and getting the benefits that they think are best for them them and their families. Would you, would you sort of agree, Jeff? So, so, yeah, certainly. And, and what some of our member companies have found is those systems are not are, are designed almost in a way to make it challenging. The wait time for visa processing in Australia is, is scandalous at the moment. Um, and there'd be no applications during COVID. But some of those things need to get cleared. You know, these aren't, when we think about Australia as always having net positive inward migration. It's not just a pressure release valve and it's not just, oh, we need some IT workers or we need this. It's not just a little piecemeal thing we're doing. This is across the board economic and societal program and it has been that since 1788. Um, So we'd be really looking to 
actually having that used positively. I think the benchmarking against foreign competitors because mm. the world has changed. Um, we are further away from the rest of the world. Some of those things are clear. Australia has a lot of things to sell it for because other large in- inward migration countries, I'll name the US, probably don't look as good for migrants partic- as they had in the past, particularly for non-white migrants. Um, but really actually thinking about this and for Australian point of view, we've, you know, for our entire existence, we've assumed everyone wants to move here. And maybe they do, mm. but we're in a competitive marketplace now. And how can we make sure we're, you know, competing against a New Zealand or a Canada or other peer, peer locations? If you benchmark it at the moment, we're probably not. So in addition to the, the population and migration challenges, the other thing that really strikes me at the moment as the quite wicked problem is just the enormous national debt as being a huge barrier to a lot of the things that the country can do. I mean, because on the one hand, it would seem that we we urgently need a whole lot of productivity-boosting infrastructure that maybe can only come from the state, um, but we have this enormous national debt at a time when we're also moving towards 3 maybe call it 4% GDP on defence. You know, c- can we get the foreign investment into Australia to kind of help dig us out of this hole? Well, look, I'd just first start by, you know, just attacking your question. Do it. Um, (laughs) What I mean by that is I think sometimes we have to be a bit careful because national debt is not like, for example, our personal debt Mm. and and what might seem huge on paper, um, not to ignore the the sheer size, but there are factors that come into play when you're um, a country holding debt versus, say, an individual um, holding debt. And I'm sure, Will, that you're very fiscally responsible and would never sort Uh, of get yourself into such a a situation. (laughs) So um, taking that as as, um, probably a, a given. Um, there's an issue in the sense that there's there's sort of the level of debt, there's the stage of development that the country's at and future prospects that factor into how, you know, sustainable it is. There's international conditions that affect how you um, sort of hold and use that debt. And then, of course, there's actually what you do with that money, you know, and and it, some of it is, is basic economics about, you know, you invest it well in things that um, provide benefits for years to come and it's a sound investment that reaps, you know, um, huge opportunities and benefits that um, help you um, pay it off and then some. So it's I would just start by, you know, characterising that um, the question to begin with as not quite the same as mm. as sort of racking up um, individual, um, you know, bills on, I don't know, shopping online or whatever it is. Good debt and bad debt, as the former Prime Minister used to say. Well, oh, yeah. You've, yeah got MMT, you've got MMT on our listeners here. <laughs> oh, that's well, I wasn't going to talk about inflating away debt, but get, um, yeah. <laughs> no, Jeff, please, would you like to would you like to give us the MMT premise? I'm, I'm still oh, grappling with it. <laughs> oh, oh, goodness, no. But look, I think there's, to take up your point a different way, there's also like foreign investment in Australia brings three things capital, which is money, but also technology and also marketing channels and connections. Um, and you know, if you look at all of the big Australian re- export industries, particularly in resources in the past, that's that's what the package has been. The development of the iron ore industry in Australia, which is now a $100 billion a year export industry, was supported by investment from Japan in the 1960s where it was capital, but it was also American companies bringing large-scale mining technology that Australia did not have at the time. And also the ability to sell preferentially into Japanese market, which there was at the time there was these 25 year long term contracts, which meant you could take a bet on a mega project like this because you knew you had a guaranteed market for the life of the project. Um, we're certainly a little bit worried that in last year in 2021, global FDI flows rebounded. So they snapped back to what they were before COVID, but not for Australia. We only, um, we're still, we still ran half of what we would have been getting in the three years before the pandemic. Um, so that tells you that, you know, global corporations and investors have gone off Australia a bit, probably because of our hard-closed border. Um, you know, the anecdote is I'm not going to spend a billion dollars on something in your country if I can't come and look at it. Mm. Now, now investors can, um, and, but it's going to be really interesting. We in Australia, I think we, we lost the sense of how shocking our closed border for such a long time was to the rest of the world where that didn't happen. Um, and I, I think we have a bit of a marketing effort required on ourselves to go there and actually say, no, no. We've imposed some sovereign risk on ourselves as an investment destination that I, I worry that not everybody in Australia fully appreciates because it is quite nice down here, but not everybody else knows that. <laughs> Well, the other thing I would say is that if you were looking at us from the outside, you'd just be slightly puzzled about, so Australia has these amazing green energy resources, markets already moving in this way. How has Australia not, 
you know, started down the path of becoming this green energy superpower that it has the potential to be. And, and being a bit facetious, of course, you then look at Australian politics and and the structure of our political economy and, and things start to make more sense. But, um, you know, it, you know, in terms of um, finding some silver linings and some um, areas of um, positive potential for investment and growth and ways of um, uh, managing debt, for example, and, and good investments to use um, your words, Will, oh, sorry, former prime minister's words. <laughs> Um, so, for example, you know, all that, you know, Australia's potential, we have this potential to have all this excess wind and solar capacity. Um, you know, we can use that. That's a great, um, you know, renewable story. It's a great economic story. It's also a great story of our potential for influence in our region. Um, so Sun Cable is a good example of that, you know, being able mm. to channel, um, you know, excess capacity um, to countries nearby, that that kind of thing, even if it's not that particular technology, even if it's others that are related, that's a bigger story for Australia. Australia um, and something that's worth spending money on. So with some domestic politics involved there, to put it lightly, mm. um, but in terms of the confluence of factors that would seem to be putting us on that trajectory, they're there, right? So we're in a, an era of high f- um, fuel prices. We're also in an era of, you know, green climate activism sort of peaking. Um, investment and sort of environmental and social governance um, attitudes have changed, you know, so at least overseas and starting to happen here too. You know, people are just not willing to invest if they don't see the ESG credentials. So there's a sort of, you know, a helpful confluence of factors pushing us in that direction. But, of course, uh, the domestic political side of this, apart from um, big business, is also, um, you know, the, the cost on consumers. So we've recently been through issues with gas prices. Um, of course, you know, what you could say, an economist might say is, had we just resolved that, you know, the regulatory, um, you know, the the regulation around energy changed sooner, we would not necessarily have had to go through that. We could have been in a more, you know, we could have been uh, had a more a renewables-driven market ready to go and, and mm. smoothed out that issue. But putting aside counterfactuals, um, there, uh, there are domestic issues that shouldn't be overlooked, but there's a, there's a huge shining opportunity there. And, and I think a lot of those factors I laid out are kind of laying out that that path for us. Well, I mean, before we wrap up, I'm I'm mindful that I have kind of steered our conversation around a, a fairly dreary path. But in my defence, I think I'm just kind of taking the world as I see it. But you know, Helen, you've done your best to kind of um, highlight some some you know silver linings, so to speak, in the Australian and international context. So I'm, I might give you and Jeff just another opportunity to kind of point out you know any aspects either about what's taking place in the Australian economy or in the global economic position that you know you you're that gives you a particular degree of kind of encouragement or hope about um about the forward outlook we'll go to Jeff first oh first so I don't have much time to think about it look, <laughs> I, look I would say that if you if you look at where we know the global economy is going to be over the next generation um and, and that's renewables that we've just talked about. It's a number of other things uh, with a movement towards, you know, technology and IP and services. We've all seen this during the pandemic where suddenly everything's just done online and no one minds very much, you know. Remember when it was a, I'm sure for you guys working in national security, you could, everything had to be done in person and then COVID mm-hmm. happened and now we had to, uh, Australian government agencies had to get used to Teams calls very reluctantly. Um, all of these things work in Australia's favour because, we are a resource-rich and skills-intensive economy and we're also a place that has suffered from the tyranny of distance. And those transformations are going to call for skills-intensive resource stuff and the technologies are going to reduce the tyranny of distance between us and the rest of the world. You know, we've we've all experienced that over the last uh, two years. So in the long run, I think it's going to be okay, but we <laughs> we are going to have to get through some of these issues about how do we come out of this and how do we deal with the fact that some of the global economic settings we've been used to for our whole lives aren't going to be there for the next couple of years at least. Mm. Last word, Helen. <laughs> I think, pressure's on. Look, I think that the grim sort of outlook we've discussed has, though, born out of necessity, some need for creativity, some need for blurring interdisciplinary boundaries that are, you know, 
areas of opportunities. So we, as Jeff outlined earlier, we now uh, cannot sort of demarcate um, markets to just sort of run themselves. We're thinking much more, or not that they ever were, but the the political risk premium is higher, as Jeff said, and so we're having to pay more attention to it. So this kind of blurring of boundaries is making us think um, more creatively. It's giving us new avenues. It, it, you know, we're able to brand things like um, a push to green energy as a security issue, and it really is, but also it means that more can be done in ways that it conventionally couldn't. So I think we can see silver linings there. I think we can also see that new ideas and innovation uh, can, come, can come out of this push towards, for example, areas like geoeconomics. So you need people that can think um, in a sort of, you know, the geopolitical realm as well as the economic realm. And even though that can be hard to do and it's, in, you know, it can be a tough exercise, I think we're better for it. I think when you overlay all these different issues that are going on in the world, whether it be climate change, you know, demography or, you know, breakdowns in supply chains, we're actually being forced to work more together, you know, whether it's in business or in government or in academia. And I actually think that's a really good thing, even though it's born out of necessity. Hmm. Well, and with that, uh, Jeff, Helen, thank you both very much for your time and for your insights. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Jeff. Cheers. Thanks so much, guys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.